0: Psalm 27 The Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear the Lord is the stronghold of my life of whom shall I be afraid when evil doers assail me to eat up my flesh and my adversaries and, and foes it is they who stumble and fall Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble and he will conceal me under the cover of his tent and he will lift me high upon a rock and now my head uh, shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy and I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, O Lord, do I seek? Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servants away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Uh, Wait for the Lord. I've forgotten to do that, but there you go. We're actually not sure uh, when David wrote this psalm. Uh, Some people have said that it was while Saul was hounding him, or, or when his own son Absalom had turned against him. But what we do know is that what David was experiencing was real. It was real. The battle was real. The things that he was writing about were very real. And he was experiencing, therefore, real fear because of his enemies. But he also, what he, what he was experiencing was a real sense of victory over his enemies. So although there was fear, there was also a, a victory So, Psalm 27 is about confidence. It's about confidence uh, in God, and at its core, it is a plea for us to be confident in God in the midst of an attack by our enemies. So, that's when we are called to uh, be confident. So I want to look at first uh, a confidence in Yahweh. That would have been uh, the name of the God that David knew. So I want to look there. Because Yahweh, as as David describes him, uh, is light, salvation and stronghold of life. That's verse 1. The stronghold of my life. And I want you to notice that if you look into Psalm 27, the first thing that you'll notice there is that David describes Yahweh as a stronghold in my life. It's very personal to him. That his God is not an abstract God that is away from him. He's a God that he knows and a God who he experiences personally. It's something that he can talk about. These are the things that happen in my life. And he knows, he says, look, God, he's a stronghold in my life. The, and he can list them off. These are the things that he's done to protect me. And you see that uh, very protective role of Yahweh. And I want you to know that, that God has got a protective role to his nature he sees God, if you remember this from Psalm 23, as the illuminating light that vanquishes the shadow of death. That's what he knows. Even though I walk th- through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. This is the God in whom David knows. He knows that he marks out his paths of righteousness for his own namesake. He has a personal understanding of these things he knows what God does for him he can tell other people he's writing about what God does it isn't abstract it's real it's personal it happened he can tell other people about it he can articulate it he can actually say I know that Yahweh is life-saving because he saved his life Can tell other people about the events. This is how Yahweh did it. They great so bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not what? All his benefits. He can tell people. He's got a list of benefits that he can say this is, is God in whom he serves. It is wonderful. Therefore, he goes back to all that list, that protection list, that life-saving list, that walking through the valley of the shadow, of the, that path of righteousness, and he looks at life and he says, therefore, whom shall I be afraid? That's how he looks at it. He looks at this, and then he looks at that, and he goes, Nah. You know, and what what is our natural reaction? Our natural reaction is to look at God and to look at that and go, Ugh. But David looks at God and looks at this and goes, nah. But actually, who is the most biblical at this? Is it me that goes and I you know, you know me, I can do I could do hours on the trouble? But David looks at it and he goes, these are my enemies. And this is Absalom, his son. This is Saul who's after to murder him. And he looks at it and he goes, no. Why can he do that? Why can he do How does he know this? So One of the commentators said this. He knows this, therefore he is and he acts according to it. He knows this. See, if we have a confidence in God, we will not just know it, we will act accordingly in the battle. We will be it whether the battle's there or not. There will be a confidence. So just so that you get to know what sort of thing that David is facing, David describes it. He says, you may think that I'm some sort of, you you know, praise the Lord, whatever type of person. But it says here, evildoers assail me. What does that mean? It says that evildoers, they attack, assault and overwhelm me. So it's not, not easy, is it? It's his toughy woofy stuff. It's not sort of light stuff. Isn't somebody's written some comment on Facebook about me? This is very personal bodily attack how do we know that because it says they eat up my flesh they eat up my flesh now the only thing that i know about that is that an animal with its prey eats up its flesh so you know a little bit of the intensity of what the situation is going on here and he says, even though this is happening, David's perspective on this is, despite this, it is they who will stumble and fall. That is incredible, isn't it? What an incredible position to hold. Because he knows that evil cannot stand against Yahweh. It cannot stand. Will a church be built in rixon Yes. Why is this? Because evil cannot stand against Yahweh. Will we go on and plant? Yes, of course we will. Why? Because evil cannot stand against Yahweh. Will the Holy Spirit come and meet us in our meetings? Yes. Why? Because, because evil cannot stand against Yahweh. That is our confidence. Our confidence is not in what we see, but what in we, what we know. It's him. And it's more than this sort of, well, you know, defiance. I've seen defiance, and most of you have seen defiance, haven't you? Sort of, you know, I'm sick, but I'm not. We've seen people that have turned up to meetings, you know, with a wooden leg, you know, and the Lord's healed me. Or, you know, (laughs) it's not a cold, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's not like that here. Let me try and give you something more. It's sort of... It's sort of like this, it's sort of, well, it's bad now, but I'm still confident. It's good tomorrow, but I'm still confident. It's bad the day afterwards, but I'm still confident. It's good the day afterwards. It's this sense of whatever happen- happens, I have a confidence in God. So I will not be thrown by it. I will not be thrown by an enemy. I will not be thrown by, by a friend. I am confident in God whatever happens. This is what the commentators say about confidence. I live according to what he says, not what I see. And therefore it will breed growth in God and produce big promises of hope and security. See, confidence in God will produce this hope and security. is wonderful? It's absolutely wonderful. How do I know that? Listen to this from Jeremiah. Listen to, and as far as I know, Jeremiah is one of the most morbid complaining prophets that I know. I mean, if ever you want an evening out, take Jeremiah out for you. He's just depressive, the guy. And you meet in heaven, and you just wonder whether you're going to get there. And the one without the smile is Jeremiah. It's that sort of thing. But suddenly, he has a moment and he says this. Jeremiah 17, verse 7-8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by a stream. He does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. Isn't that a wonderful promise? I'll have green leaves when the heat is on. I, am, I will not be anxious In the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So what we can know is that confidence will enable us to be fruit-bearing even in our worst situations. That's wonderful to know, that God can produce fruit in us if we can have confidence in him in the midst of battle. Because most of us, we think that fruit comes when things are going well. And God says, no, I can plant you out. I can refresh you. I can help you to grow if you will have a constant confidence in me, whatever. So that's how, oh, this is how David starts. And then he tells us a little bit about what he feels and he tells us that he desires to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, that's normal in battle, isn't it? You, sometimes you just think, I'd rather be somewhere else. And he thinks he'd rather be in heaven, which is probably a good, you know, do I have to do this? But he also refer, so we could refer to it, but it also refers to not only that sort of desire up in the, the mounting, but it also refers to the sense of dwelling in the house of God in the here and now. So it isn't just that he wants to know, "God, can I just get out of this? Do I have to live this any longer? Can I just dwell here and stay here because that will be good? What David says is this, we can know this in the here and now. We can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So he says this, I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of my life, and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. But it's more than that. He gives his intention. He says, that will I seek after. I will not wait, I will seek. Now I want to suggest to you that there are in the church, not just ours, there are waiters and seekers. There are people that will search for the presence of God. And tonight you may have been in one category, you might have waited for the presence of God. Or you may have had something in your heart that said, I'm going after this. I'm going to go after it. I'm going, to have, I'm going to be a person that will seek after the presence of God. I'm going to be a searcher for it. It's something that's in here. It isn't something that you attend. You don't attend a conference to, to, to be able to go. It's something that happens in here. It's something that when, as it were, the first song goes, you go, I'm searching for this. It's something that you go for. It's something that affects you down deep. You're a searcher. In the context of the psalm is always worship because we know that that was the intention of, the ser- of that. But David's determination is not st- just to worship But it is to remain there. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's where I want to live. Isn't that really impressive? Because David's king. David knows and will know all that he can know about being king. And yet David says, but I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. He can have any of the earthly benefits and will have all of the earthly benefits that will come his way in abundance. And David says, no, because I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to be on my bike and experiencing the presence of God. I want to be in the loo and on the bath. I want to be in the bath, on the loo, whatever. But... (laughs) all sorts it's it's that sort of stuff it's it's that permanence of knowing the presence of God it's really interesting isn't it because particularly charismatics we are rubbish sorry if you're listening to this on the tape but we are because we we go into meetings and suddenly we quiver a bit when was the last time you saw a quivering charismatic in the loo Well, if you were there with them, what were you doing there with them? But you know what I mean, don't you? The promise is that we will dwell in the presence of God. It's a promise that we don't just go there, that we can be there. We don't just go to it. We can live there. We can know it. We can experience it. It's a wonderful problem. Don't you think, think, oh, come on. And the problem is that life extends so many blessings that they look good because we haven't dwelt in the presence of God long enough. We need to know this because it's that thing about you know, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Well, they don't grow strangely dim because they look really exciting and the problem is that we haven't dwelled long enough yet. So some of you older guys, and I'm putting myself in that bracket now, We've got some dwelling to do yet. It's fantastic, isn't it? Because it goes on. What am I trying to explain? It goes on to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, I want to just talk about Matt Redman. Matt Redman's strange. He sometimes writes strange lyrics because he puts in things like obsessed. And I think being a good strict Baptist that we cannot sing about being obsessed with the Lord. What is that? I'm of sound mind. Well, no, I'm not so. <laughs> but actually, the Hebrew for gaze upon the Lord is to be obsessed with the beauty of the Lord. I have to admit that I can be obsessed with Wolverhampton Wanderers sometimes. And not obsessed with the beauty of the Lord. I want to challenge you. Where is your obsession? It's Can we have some OCD Christians on the beauty of the Lord? We need to do this. We need to be on the autistic spectrum in regard to the beauty of the Lord. We need to be biblical about the beauty of the Lord. I need to be obsessed with him. I need to be. There is so much that he wants to say to me, show me. And and I just want to give him 10 minutes of my concentration. Let me try and explain this to you. Why? What is this to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? I want you to picture the royal court. And the royal court would have been huge. And it would have been packed full of people. And these were people who'd been allowed into the royal court to sit in the presence of the king. Now there were people outside of the royal court that were really knocked about the ones that were in. And the ones that were in were looking at the ones that were out going, <clears throat> because they're out. And the interesting thing is that when you are in the, count, the Lord, when you are in the court of the king, the king might one day just lean forward, and say, "Andrew, have a thousand shekels on me. Please take it." There's nothing there. What are you did that for? <laughs> you see that you are likely to get favours from the king. Because you sat in the court. Not only that, you would receive all the lavish hospitality that came because you were in the presence of the king. Not only that, you heard his voice. You heard him speak. You listened to his counsel. You watched as people approached him. You heard him discuss his great plans because you happened to. To be there. I want to sit and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Because I'm jealous for a few shekels. I want to hear his voice. I, I want to know his plans. I, I want to see what he's got to say. I want to be there when it comes out. Do you know some of the privileges that I've had of being an old New Frontiers guy is that when you see some of the stuff on the website and it said this prophecy was given, herds of elephants pu-, and all that sort of stuff and some of you lot think, what? I can actually say that I was there. And I can tell you there's a difference between me being there and hearing it and you reading it. Because I nearly burst every blood vessel in my body when I it was such a magnificent thing to be there to hear the king speak and for a whole movement to be shaped because of it and what we were doing it was a simple Thursday prayer meeting it was we were just praying together when some of those things so I want to ask you some questions are you obsessed To be in the presence of the king and gaze upon his beauty. To just look at him and think, what a wonderful king we serve. Are you fanatical, preoccupied, fixated, infatuated with the Lord? Let me try and explain this to you. I do believe that deeply rooted in every human heart is a longing for beauty. It may be different in us all. But there's a longing for beauty somewhere. Why do we go to national parks? Why do we go on holiday? Why do some of you go around to art exhibitions? Why do some of you like wandering um, in hills and mountains and going to gardens? Why do you go back to Bodnant Gardens? Why do we in our small little square things that we have do you do that then? Stray. Yeah, we do that. Uh, the Laburnum Arch. Oh yeah. Just, oh, the, it's just lie here with my camera at this angle and get the Laburnum Arch. And yeah uh, the thirty five others lying doing the same thing and have been there for a week. And you're just about to take it, and somebody comes round the corner, and you, and it, you know, do not murder. Oh no! <laughs> and all my photographs of the Leibniz Arch have got people in them. Photoshop. But if you think about it, we all get given a little square. Th- what did I do when I got given my little square? I did something strange. I didn't just leave it as a barren thing. Instinct came within me and I bought a strimmer and I started to strim weeds. I dug it hour after hour, planted some plants, wanted to plant a tree but couldn't work that one out. But there's something in us that wants to create something that is beautiful. It's in us. Why on earth, when you get a house, do some of you want to paint colours on the inside of it? It is just bizarre, isn't it? We had our Christmas dinner in a dining room that was painted the darkest red that I could... I wasn't sure where we were. And I was told it matched the architecture of the house. I wanted to paint it magnolia, <laughs> lighten it up a little bit. but they thought it was stunningly beautiful. There's something about that. Isn't it really interesting that whatever history has thrown up, that somewhere in history that you find out that a group of people have not just made something for the purpose of just mere using it? Isn't that strange? So you go through and you go through and you watch Time Team and they dig something up and they dust something out and somebody says, somebody's put a thumbprint around this. And they ask the question, they say, why have they done that? And they go, to make it look beautiful. And you think, oh, history. And you go, we went on holiday once to... To, um, to, the, to to the to the we went to, to visit Lasco, Is it that's right, Lasco. And you go into this cave, and suddenly people have painted the most extraordinary things on the walls. And you think, but they're primitive people, but they understand beauty, and they move naturally towards beauty. It's sort of an instinctive thing. It's a a glimpse of something. I believe that we yearn to have something of beauty around us. It is even strange, isn't it? Because I have to say this, and I don't mean this to offend any of the ladies that is, is in here at all, but my wife is more beautiful than any of you put together. I am very sorry about that. But I, this is the way that I feel. Now I hope your husbands, you can check this out when you need to check So when you lie at night together, with you ask this question, was that true about me, dear? If they say no, <laughs> ring me. And we will sort it out. But there is that sense, isn't there, of beauty. Now I am persuaded that the reason for this is that God is ultimately the beautiful one. And that in this instinct for the long longing of beauty is actually a fallen sense to look for something that is beautiful. That actually, when it's uncovered, shows us the beauty of the Lord, where nothing else is as beautiful as him. It's there, it's an instinctive thing. And if you think sometimes about a waterfall or something, think beyond. It's not the waterfall, it's leading you towards something greater. It is always that. You are on a journey. Don't stop halfway. It's like going for coffee on the motorway services if you do that. You've not reached it. When you think this is magnificent, go on. That's, that's what it was meant to do. Go on and gaze at the beauty of the Lord. Why? For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. There's a protective element to the presence of God. He hides you. He conceals you. Now can you see what happens when you withdraw from his presence he places you on a high rock this isn't the God who is the rock this is here because you are lifted high upon a rock there will always be a day of trouble Jesus says in this world you will have trouble but here it is here it is here Here's Jesus speaking and David bringing it in prophetically. There will always be a day of trouble for us. But if we're going to see that trouble from a perspective and a right perspective, then we're going to need to be lifted high upon the rock. And 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 the way that we do that is that we dwell in the house of the Lord. We gaze upon his beauty. It takes us high upon a rock and it gives us a perspective of trouble. That's what worship does. That's what gazing upon him does. So David has an intentionality to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and it is that that gives him a balanced idea of his enemies. But he also has a plea for deliverance from his enemies. Verse 7 starts the second part of the psalm, and it starts by the series of requests in the midst of the enemy's attack. And it's in the midst of. It's not before and it's not afterwards. It's in the midst of. We start requesting in the middle of it. His first request is this. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. This is not, I will not be heard by the Lord. This is a cry to be heard. O Lord, when I cry but it also points out where the psalmist is looking for help. Sometimes our instinct for help are to to authorities, to other people. Our first instinct is to pick up the phone. Our first instinct is, this is where I'm looking to help from. This is what David is learning. He's learning, bloody heck, it's fierce out there. Okay, Lord, <laughs> I'm coming to you. I'm going to cry out loud. Is that the right thing to do? To do that first? Before we do anything else, I'm going to cry out to you. Psalm 121 1. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Where does your help come from? Where does your help come from? <laughs> I know that's simple, but actually it's very profound. He moves on and he says, you have said, seek my face. Sometimes you have to remind, you, remind ourselves or allow others to remind us what we should be doing in different situations. Do what Yahweh says works. It's quite simple, but again, it's profound. Do what he says. You know, some of us, and, and hear what I say with this, And I must admit, I've got to be careful because I know that my my great leader has moved on to the politics move. We've probably heard about it now for a year and a half. But it's interesting, politics will not save us. Whatever your view, whether whether you be a coalition person, a conservative, or a Labour person, it will not save you. Only seeking his face will save you. And it's just really interesting that often people think, well, if I can lobby this or protest against this and say this. No, seek his face. Seek his face. Do you know, I think it's amazing what probably millions of Christians could do if they would just stop and pray. (laughs) If we just had a nation of prayers, can you imagine what our nation would look like? If If we stopped complaining and started interceding, about such huge things. Well, what about the National Health Service? Fire Jonathan. That'll save us an awful lot of money. Now, don't fire Jonathan. Pray for Jonathan, but pray that God will come. Can you imagine what righteousness would the effect of the weight of righteousness to some of these institutions would just do? How does that work? Seek his face. Seek his face. Do that first. Why am I saying that? Prayer meeting coming up. Hide not your face from me. Not only can I hear you, but I can't see you. I can't see your face. I can't see you in this. Said that one before? We've all said that one before, haven't we? But it's interesting. This is not as we read it as a complaint. But it's actually something like this. I can't see you, Lord. Now, I want to see you. It's not negative. It's not, flipping it, Phil Harman. God's not in this. It says, I can't see God, so I'm going to come and say, God, you've got to come. It's that way. It's the positive way of doing it. Cast me not off, forsake me not. Do not abandon me. The psalmist, not only, David, not only knew Yahweh as saviour and helper, but he also knew that he needed a saviour saviour who can move this mountain it isn't that you were once saved it is it is that you are being saved it isn't once that you had a day in history when you when the saviour saved you it is that the saviour saved you and will continue to save you and we need to be a people that cries out lord you need to save us you need to save our church You need to save our nation. You need to save our institutions. You need to save my family. This is the nature of the saviour. The saviour saves. And that's the cry. Lord, I need a saviour in this. And he comes. And then he says this. Teach me your way, O Lord. I am open to you to teach me, to guide me, to lead me. You know, all battles are tough, trouble is tough, enemies are tough, but it's not about the trouble or the enemy that is the problem. The problem usually is me. And in the middle of it, I have to humble myself in the midst of difficulties and say, what am I learning about you that is right and me that is wrong? It's a really interesting. Let's see what David is saying. It's often, why are not you doing it and they are wrong? And David's saying, no, I want to learn about you and I want you to tell me what's wrong about me. And you think, whoa. Why is that? So that he can grow in God and move on. It's interesting with trouble, isn't it? Trouble comes and it's them. It's never me. And I'm good at that. I can do hours on telling Callie why she's wrong and I am right. And actually, it's sort of like an instinctive thing. And God's saying, look, trouble is only dealt with in one way. What do you want to say and what is wrong about me? Teach me. Teach me. Guide me. Lead me. Show me. This is what we have to do. It's it's just really uh, what did I learn? It was them. You didn't learn much because we knew that in the first place. What changed you? See, the questions at first glance appear to be complaints. You're not hearing me. You said you're not working. You've abandoned me. They're accusations. But actually, the psalmist is working out God's great plan in his life. So then he moves on to confidence and encouragement. The final verses, we're nearly there. The final verses of the psalm. And he says, it's sort of like a a war cry. And he does this, he says, I believe in the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That is an amazing statement. That's really godly defiance, isn't it? But it's an unusual word for goodness here. It's both well-being and success. So his expectation is that he will know both well-being and success in the land of the living. Now this is not stiff upper lip. This is that our God is greater. <laughs> it's just simply this. It isn't that he's just, he's just saying, no, I believe the goodness of the Lord is greater than this. That's what I'm going to rest on in this. I know this. I know my God is victorious. But there's another unusual word here, and it's the use of the word land of the living. It refers to present life as opposed to the Hebrew word shol. And the Old Testament word is a general word used for grave or the darkness of death. Now, why don't you hear me? Because this is the perspective of the psalmist. The psalmist does this. He expects deliverance in the land of the living. But even if he doesn't get it, he knows that he still has received his deliverance because he has an eternal perspective on what happens. So he says, if you give me victory in this life, I'll celebrate it. And if if Absalom or Saul kills me, I'm victorious anyway. And that's his perspective. And he's like, it's a win-win situation, isn't it? He's living life with that. He's saying, if it works out for me, victorious. If you get me, victorious. <laughs> it's that sort of stuff. you know, Come on, Saul. Absalom. Bring it on. You can't win. I am the only one that can win. So Isaac Watt said this. Should all the hosts... Of death and powers of hell unknown put their most dreadful forms of rage and malice on. I shall be safe, for Christ displays superior power and guardian grace. And he rides into battle. And Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18 We look not to the things that are seen. But to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Verse 17. We renew our inner man looking at this truth. Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond comprehension. The unseen things. That Paul was able to strengthen on, be able to gauge, be able to draw from. And then the psalmist says, Therefore, be strong and let your heart take courage. Remember that? That's Joshua, isn't it? Same thing. He's repeating it. He's saying this because I have this perspective, I can be strong, I can be full of courage, I can just stand here. If Saul comes with the biggest knife or Absalom with the biggest army, I can just look at him in the face. I can be strong. We can take it. Why? Because I'm viewing it from an eternal perspective and not from a temporal perspective. My life is eternal. Your life is eternal. It's not temporal. You are eternal beings. When things come up, look at them in an eternal light so that your courage and your strength can come from the Lord. That's the wonderful thing. Kelly's grandfather is 99 and 51 weeks. It's his 100th birthday next week. And he's dying and we as a family are gathering to celebrate the 100th birthday. But he might not make it. In fact, we don't think that he will. And we on earth want to write this, at least go to 101 day. Because we want a party. And there's all sorts of things. There's meals planned. And there's balloons to hang on the wheelchair and the slideshows that will be shown, and the family will be gathering, and he won't care a fig, because he will not be in a wheelchair for one more day longer, because he has an eternal perspective. He has lost his marbles. He doesn't know that we're here, and we're doing it, trying to keep him alive. For us! And he will burst into heaven rejoicing. What are we playing at? The only one that's got an eternal perspective is him. And he, hasn't, he doesn't know any longer. The only people that have got an eternal one, a temporal one, is us. We want to keep, please, we want to keep him. Do you know, we've had some things in our life to deal with, and sometimes they've been really hard Because sometimes we want to keep people alive. And we want to do that. Who for? Us. It is for us. And I know what that means because I'm at to sit in a, in a hospital and talk to doctors about switching a machine off that my mom was with. So it isn't that it doesn't come without understanding. It does come with it. And the reason is, that I, what, and I had, to st- I had to, moments because they do this, doctors don't. They say, would you like to take a moment? What is that? How long is that moment? I want to take a moment. Take a moment to consider switching the machine off about your mum. Do you want to just gather yourself for a moment? And I had to think this. Why do I want to keep my mum with me? Who is this for? Is this for me and whatever? And when we, we don't think eternally. We, we think temporally. For, I want this for me. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say, to die is gain, Because he had an eternal perspective. And David could say the same. Whether Absalom comes with an army, or Saul comes with a sword, or whatever happens in life, and the Apostle Paul can say, he said, eternity will shape me and move me on. And it is these things that give us strength and courage. I can't think about me, you for doofies. So, sometimes we're going to have to wait. Do you know something? If you were sitting in this battle... You're going to think, when is Absalom coming? When is Saul coming? That's tough, isn't it? So David says, I need to wait for the Lord. Oh, I'm worst. I'm one of those guys that, you know, in Sainsbury's, just as you're beginning to the end of the shop, that you're looking for that one. And I don't know whether you've ever noticed that when you get there, the one that's next to you clears. Did, did I am to use. Oh, okay. I just thought it was judgment, but it isn't. But that's so. He asked to. He's asked to wait. Waiting for the Lord is something. Is looking for the Lord to act, or consulting, or seeking His will before any human aid is pursued. In short, we wait for the Lord when we pause to pray. <laughs> Psalm 106, verse 13. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. The first act of waiting to seek God's counsel, sorry, the first act is waiting to seek God's counsel before trying to solve it ourselves. We wait. We're submissive. We are not telling him what he should do, we are asking him what he thinks. It's a huge difference. Many a prayer meeting. We want you to do this, and we want you to do that, and we want you to do the other. We've not come and said, Lord, we're just here. We're just gathering. We're not coming with our requests and intercessions. We're coming to hear what you want to say about this. Can you imagine that sort of meeting we come with so much, don't we, on our, on our list. Lord, we want you to do this. And then when you've done that, can you do the other? And he says, well, you know, I can't get a word in edgewise here. See, so to wait for the Lord, is having a sense of reliance on his ability and an understanding that he knows what needs to be done. When we're waiting for the Lord, we have an expectancy that God will not fail And the result will be right, whatever it is. (laughs) Romans 4. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed. And so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening his faith, he faced that fact in his body, although it was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith, gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised to do. Why did Abraham grow stronger in faith? It isn't because he played mental denial games with God. No, no. The passage makes it very clear that he hit the situation head-on. Let me just read to you something from a commentary. In his time of waiting, Abraham had a very different experience than we often do because Abraham did something that we often fail to do. In the temptation, in times of waiting, is our focus on the thing that we are waiting for or the obstacles that are in our way or our ability to make it happen or of the other people who haven't seemed to wait as long as you have had to wait. Along with this, we rehearse to ourselves how essential it would be if we were to have this thing right now. All of this increases our feeling of helplessness, our tendency to think that the situation is now hopeless, and our judgment is this, that waiting on the Lord is very hard. While it's true that Abraham considered the facts, They weren't the very focus of his meditation, no. His focus was on the God who had made the promise. Every every day Abraham would get up and he'd remind himself that the God who had made the promise on which he was waiting was absolutely able to deliver it in his time. The God who made heaven and earth would have no trouble causing this old woman to deliver the promised child. Abraham didn't fill his mind with the weaknesses and the seeming futility of the situation. No, he filled his mind again and again with the glory of God's immeasurable power. And as he did this, he grew stronger in his faith. You know, sometimes in our lives, we will be called to wait. And as you are being called to wait... God has given you an opportunity to deepen your faith. It isn't to do with the waiting. It's to do with your faith. It's nothing to do with waiting upon the Lord. It's everything to do with you and me. Well, I've got to wait. Why? Why? Well, it isn't the Lord, because he can do it tomorrow. So what is it then? It's me. It's me. It's all to do with Abraham. It's all to do with Sarah. It's nothing to do with the Lord. I want to just take you finally to this. And I'm just going to read this to you, if I may. Because I want to say this to you, that I struggled with trying to bring this one back to the fact that somewhere in here there would be a prophetic edge towards Jesus and what he'd done for us. And the reason that I did that is that I spent most of my time, in fact, I spent hours, in fact, I nearly spent a whole day trying to work out, verse 1, the Lord is my light and salvation, whom shall I fear? And I tried to prove that that must mean that Jesus is our light and our salvation. The trouble is that it isn't there. But I just want to take you to one thing in conclusion. Psalm 27 actually exactly predicts what Paul says about the cross. Sorry, uh, Psalm 27, verse 2. And if you look at it, You'll see this. When my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Verse 2. Now listen to this. This is Paul's words. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is this is David prophesying these incredible events on the cross. You see the cross wasn't an unexpected moment outside the plan of God where Jesus faced temporary defeat. On the contrary, it was the ultimate moment of stumbling for the forces of darkness. In what looked like the enemy's time of triumph, it actually was the enemy's ultimate defeat. From the moment of the fall of Adam and of Eve, the the enemy was destined to stumble at the cross. There was no possibility that Jesus would be attacked and defeated. Peter made it clear that this event had been determined before the foundation of the world. That God had controlled the forces of nature, written the events of human history to bring in the Messiah, the sacrificial lamb, the hope of the world, to this point on a cross. And the hope of the whole universe rested on this one moment. Yet there was no doubt that this moment of suffering would be the universe's moment of great victory and freedom. This circumstance of death would be the greatest triumph the world has ever seen. It was always destined to be. It would be Jesus. Who would triumph? It would be the enemy who would stumble and fall. So, when you read Psalm 27, verse 2, when evildoers assail me and to eat up my flesh and my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Can you see the suffering Saviour for you? When you read Psalm 27, verse 2, and celebrate the fact that you are a Christian. Can you see Jesus causing his enemies to stumble and fall, making a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross? When you read Psalm 27, verse 2, does it not fill you with deep appreciation that what came to you from the cross? When you read Psalm 27, verse 2, can you see the grace that has come to you? The enemy stumbled and fell at the cross so that you would never stumble and fall, so that your salvation would be secure. They stumbled and fell. Jesus triumphed so that you will never stumble and fall. You might bruise a knee on the way but you will never stumble and fall. The enemy can't nail you to the ground because he was nailed to the ground on the cross. And David prophesies this. And Jesus fulfills it and you receive it. That's why the Psalms are so wonderful. Because they say something to you. They say, and David takes this, doesn't he? And he says, it's them that will stumble and fall. And Jesus from the cross looks. He just looks like he's stumble and fall. No. Public spectacle. The cross is a triumph. You don't stumble and fall. What a salvation we've got. was not wonderful? Whatever is thrown against us, we won't stumble and fall.